This is Embodied on the State of Things, broadcasting from the American Tobacco Historic District. I'm Anita Rao. What comes to mind when you hear the word psychedelic? Is it vibrant colors, white hippies, or mind-bending and sometimes even dangerous trips? I think a lot of people, because they're fearful of like what psychedelics do or kind of like this big mystery of, oh, you see colors and shapes. My mom, for example, thinks really negatively of them, and that's because she has brothers who, like, were young in like the 60s and 70s who were like tripping all the time and like it led to other forms of addiction and I think that's what freaks a lot of people out is that um, if you take psychedelics they're going to completely change your persona. That was Grace, one of our listeners in Durham, who's observed some common forms of wariness and stigma around psychedelic use. But some of these substances have great potential as therapeutic medicines. Psychedelics like LSD, MDMA, and psilocybin are currently going through clinical trials to prove their usefulness in treating anxiety, PTSD, and more. Healing practices with psychedelics were also around long before any of the substances entered Western culture or medicine. So how did we get here, where psychedelic use is quite stigmatized and by some accounts widely misunderstood? Ismail Ali is the Policy and Advocacy Counsel for the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, or MAPS. MAPS is a nonprofit research and educational organization. Ismail, welcome to the State of Things. Thank you so much. Good morning, Anita. Good morning. So to start off, let's get some clarity on what psychedelics are. What are the properties of psychedelic substances? Totally. So the word psychedelic, by definition, means mind manifesting. So it's really just used as a catch-all phrase for substances, whether they're naturally occurring or synthetic or otherwise, that have a quote-unquote mind-manifesting effect. Most people associate that effect with visual effects, so like hallucinations or auditory sounds or things like that. But the psychedelic experience is really more about kind of the expansion of various sensory experiences as well as kind of parasensory experiences, which kind of fall more in the category of introspection or reflection or Uh, additional kind of layers of awareness or reflection on one's own consciousness, which sounds kind of heady, which is part of why they're associated with kind of the more easy things to see, which is the kind of shifts in patterns or the visual effects, which is what most people associate them with. Okay. And some of those um, kind of obvious associations are very well represented in popular culture and have led to a lot of common understandings or very particular understandings of what psychedelics are and what they aren't. And I'm curious if you can maybe talk about some of the misconceptions. How much truth is there in this kind of image of this dangerous, illegal substance that, you know, sends us into this technicolor tailspin? Totally. It's probably really helpful to start with the word hallucinogen, which is the word that was used to describe psychedelics for quite a bit of time, which essentially just means that you see things that aren't there. And although there are some psychedelic experiences in which one might see things that quote unquote aren't there, much more often what people experience is a witnessing of a shifting of what is actually there, like whether it's a wall or a plant or the floor, but in a way that visually appears different than it normally does. So some people might count that as an effect of the reduction of the default mode network, the way that the brain normally filters information, whether it's visual information or otherwise. And part of the misconception is that like the things that show up are things that are just coming out of nowhere, things that um, either don't exist even in your own consciousness or in the real world. And I think part of what's really helpful in reframing that is understanding psychedelics as something that really kind of remove the mind's barriers to the unconscious. So often what shows up, whether it's emotional material or psychological material or something one is seeing, 
it's often a reflection of something that's occurring within the mind of the person who's having the experience, but maybe hasn't been accessible through like the traditional means of, uh, of inputting sensory input. The other helpful word here that is sometimes used in lieu of psychedelic, although it's much less popular, is the word entheogen, which essentially means divine within, because one of the other effects of psychedelics, in addition to the quote-unquote hallucinogenic aspect, the visual one, the quote-unquote psychedelic aspect, the mind-manifesting one, is also this effect of like divinity or mysticism, as it's often called, which is kind of associated with some sort of associate, some sort of experience of connection to something bigger than oneself. Some people might call it God, some people might call it nature, but the core feeling is something that there's something outside of oneself that's possible to connect to that can be done through a visual way or an emotional way or a psychological way or a spiritual way or something else. So all of these various properties and associations we have with them are kind of brought into Western culture at various points mm-hmm. in time. But, you know, these prop- these substances have existed long before they came into Western consciousness. And I would love for you right. to take us back into the deeper history and talk about some of the ancient uses of various kinds of psychedelic substances um, and, and what they can teach us kind of as we look at them from this insight today in, in 2020. Absolutely. It's also helpful to understand that the word psychedelic also emerged kind of in what people call the second wave or a later wave of knowledge around psychedelics, which we know as the 60s and 70s. And that was the word psychedelic really is associated with that phase, which is also characterized by a creation or a popularization of synthetic substances like LSD or MDMA which may be derived from natural products, but have you know, essentially been created in the lab. So when we're talking about that like, bigger picture history that you're describing, we're usually not referring to, obviously, synthetic substances that are created in the lab, but rather a huge plethora of plants and fungi that exist all over the world on nearly every continent that have, quote-unquote, psychedelic effects or entheogenic effects um, that have been used throughout history and culture. So just as a few examples, um, and, and I should say that this isn't just an ancient practice. It's often, that's maybe one of the misconceptions is that in the past people, you know, utilize these substances, whether it's ayahuasca brew in the Amazon or psychedelic mushrooms in ways that were ceremonial or that were political or that had, um, implications for rites of passage. But the reality is that those things are still happening. They've just kind of, um, moved primarily into the underground because of the way that colonization and the war on drugs has impacted. Uh, our perception of these medicines. But historically, these substances have been used often in communities. So rather than being stigmatized and criminalized, they've often been used in community, intergenerationally, as rites of passage or as initiations or as um, containers in which various kinds of political, social, personal healing and community work can be done. So there are traditions in places like Mexico and Colombia and Brazil and parts of Africa, like Gabon and Cameroon and places in Asia, including India, where you see uses of these substances in rather than strictly kind of recreational or um, festival context, although you do see them used in celebratory context, which maybe is kind of the equivalent to our modern day festival or party culture to some extent. Um, You see kind of utilization of these substances in contexts that are really intentional and that have specific sought after outcomes. So we most often associate that, especially now with the shift into Western medicine, with healing and with healthcare, whether that's psychological healthcare, spiritual health. 
But the truth is that healing in this kind of, in many of these cosmologies is tied to other things like community health, like our relationship to our family, our community, our elders, and so on. So the psychedelic experience as used in this historical context has often been used as kind of a cultural glue or as a con- way to connect between different communities or different generations to solve problems, to actually do the kind of work we see today in the Western medicine context, which is trauma healing work, but in a variety of contexts that often are much less stigmatized and, if anything, much more accepted and integrated into society from a, a family unit perspective than we see drug use uh, and its stigmatized kind of uh, angle uh, often focused on today. So there was a big kind of series of shifts in the middle of uh, Mm -hmm. the 1900s. We had some therapeutic studies of psychedelics happening in the 1950s. Then -hmm. we had this big kind of cultural popularity of psychedelics recreationally. And then Mm -hmm. we had this massive turn um, with the Controlled Substances Act signed into law by President Nixon that really set the standard Mm -hmm. for federal policy today that really, um, you know, put these out of access for a lot of folks. So could you take us into kind of that era and, and how that created the foundation for where we are right now? Absolutely. Yeah. So I, whenever I talk about this, I like to zoom way back, actually, to about 500 years ago, because it is helpful to understand that what we call the modern day war on drugs or the global drug control regime um, as an extension of the effects of colonization, especially on the quote unquote new world um, in, you know, in the 14 and 1500s. And I say that because part of the strategy and tactics of European colonizers, especially on um, what is now the United States, Mexico, South America, et cetera, was based on the rupturing of cultural context and knowledge holding containers, which included places where places like ceremonies where some of these substances were utilized. So I say that because there is a core kind of theme of social um, dissolution or social context that, that, that you see in like the early colonization, in the, in the early phase of colonization that we see once again in the 50s and 60s and early 70s of the, ninth, of the 20th century, where there's this recognition by the, the, the super the power, in, in which case, in this case, the, the U.S. government that sees drugs. And in the case of the, you know, 60s and 70s, primarily, I would say, uh, heroin, which was associated with black people, which was associated with musicians, jazz musicians, and then LSD, which was associated with, <clears throat> excuse me, the anti-war counterculture that was emerging in the 60s. And this realization that, you know, the youth, these people were using these drugs in these contexts, and interestingly, potentially in similar contexts to the ancient ways that in the traditional ways that we're seeing, right, where you have groups of people that are utilizing it to bond with each other, to think about big ideas, to think about concepts, to enhance creativity. But that was seen as a threat um, by the U.S. government in the 60s and 70s. And then the rest of the psychedelics, you know, um, besides LSD, psilocybin or DMT or other substances, as well as a number of other drugs that don't fall into the category of psychedelics, all kind of got caught in this dragnet that became, yeah, as you said, the um, Controlled Substances Act of 1970. So there was this, there's this kind of this theme where there's a recognition that drugs and their use and psychedelics especially do have a cultural impact and have a cultural effect. And part of uh, repressing them and criminalizing them uh, was in fact a strategy that was used to not just go after the drugs themselves, but the people that were using them. And we now have quotes and evidence from people like John Anslinger and others who are architects 
of the early war on drugs that recognizes that the uh, restriction, that the policies that were put forward. Ismail, I'm going to have to stop you there. I'm going to bring you right back after the break. So stay with us just ahead on the state of things. This is Embodied on the State of Things from the American Tobacco Historic District. I'm Anita Rao. Today, we are talking about psychedelic medicine. Still with me is Ismail Ali, Policy and Advocacy Counsel for the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies. So, Ismail, I'll let you finish that thought, kind of tracing us through to where we are today um, in our use and understanding of psychedelics. Totally. No, I'll just finish the thought by saying that basically in the 1970s, when all these substances were caught into a dragnet that became the Controlled Substances Act, we kind of had to turn this new leaf from a policy perspective and figure out, well, how do we actually respond to these substances and the fact that they do have some benefits, that they do have some value in this new context where they're fully criminalized and and fully exist under prohibition. Wonderful. We are going to bring you back later on in the show. But right now, I would like to bring in another guest. Dr. Hani El-Wafi is a psychiatrist based in Chapel Hill, and he uses ketamine-assisted therapy in his practice. Ketamine is an FDA-approved medication and a hallucinogen with potential for treating anxiety and depression. Hani, welcome to The State of Things. Hi, Anita. Thanks. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate the opportunity to talk about this topic. Sure. So we did this this deep dive, this big history, and we heard about substances like MDMA and psilocybin, which are currently now being really looked at again. They're moving through the FDA's clinical trial process, and uh, mental health providers are looking into the significance and potential therapeutic use of these substances. But the one that is already legal is ketamine, and that is what you are using. So tell me a bit about ketamine and how it became um, used for psychedelic-assisted therapy. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. And I just wanted to sort of um, underscore the, the the wonderful comments that Ishmael made uh, that, that brought us up to this point. And his organization, MAPS, is really doing wonderful work. But more on that in a bit. Yeah, ketamine is an interesting molecule. It's been around for decades. It was synthesized in a lab in the 1960s. Uh, it was approved by the FDA in the 1970s uh, as an anesthesia medication that's primarily used for surgical and uh, office procedures as an analgesic that takes away pain and dissociates mind from body. Uh, over the past couple of decades, there's been an increasing amount of evidence, um, especially over the last few years as the research has really exploded, that ketamine really holds a lot of promise to relieve depression, uh, anxiety, PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, as well as substance use disorders. So tell me about using it in a therapeutic setting. You know, when we think of kind of treatment of depression, we may think of Prozac and various kinds of SSRIs and taking a pill. This is a very, very different kind of treatment process. So walk us through ketamine-assisted therapy um, and what that looks like for folks with depression. Absolutely. Uh, So there's sort of a fundamental paradigm shift uh, with psychedelic-assisted therapies, of which ketamine is sort of one example. Uh, currently, the legal example uh, is MDMA and psilocybin are uh, in advanced trials and likely to be approved, or we're hoping to be approved by the FDA. But the, the paradigm shift is really one of transformation and expansion uh, as opposed to sort of a constriction and reduction of symptoms, which traditional medications kind of target. 
And so these are kind of known as a slow-acting antidepressants like Prozac, Lexapro, uh, Effexor, Cymbalta. These are medications that have been around for a few decades now and have really, really alleviating, alleviated a lot of suffering for people. But the way they do it, you know, without getting too into the weeds, neuro, neuroscientifically speaking, is by constricting symptoms. And so putting a bit of Teflon coating on the brain, if you will. And so thoughts might be less sticky, uh, personal insults, difficult situations, triggering memories might be less triggering, uh, more easily let go of. Um, they don't really lead to an expansion of the psyche, a healing of wounds just in and of themselves. Um, when combined with therapy, there is an opportunity for sort of, the, when, when you can kind of restrict symptoms a little bit, then people can sort of tolerate therapy a little more. It becomes a little easier to sort of sit with more difficult things. Uh, but that's a big if. Now, when it comes to things like ketamine, there's an opportunity to sort of instead of taking a daily medication that reduces symptoms much like Tylenol might reduce a fever but not necessarily get to the source of an infection, molecules of ketamine can help someone to relax inhibitions, to shut down their default mode network a little bit, deactivate it, and to feel safe in confronting sources of anxiety, sources of fear, sources of worry, sadness, and in so doing, sap them of their power, of the shame that they might cause, of the, of the fear of the thing that's sort of lurking around the corner. So paint, paint me a picture of the actual session. So is, is someone taking ketamine and then they kind of, you, you bear witness to them as the drug is moving through them and as they're going through the process? Um, walk me into exactly what that looks like so we can get a picture. Oh, of course, yeah. So, of course, this is... This has become a little more complicated now in our COVID landscape, but this is an in-office treatment. We set aside two to three hours, and, you know, uh, of course, we're taking many, many precautions to keep everybody safe. Um, but in terms of the process, you know, it starts off with an evaluation where we go through a history and uh, both biological, psychological, social uh, and it helps me to kind of, you know, first do no harm to make sure that ketamine would be safe for someone. Uh, for example, someone with a history of psychosis or actively manic wouldn't be appropriate for ketamine treatment as it could worsen those. There is some back and forth about pregnancy. I mean, it's currently uh, a risk factor, but there is also some really promising research that ketamine might help with postpartum depression. Um, but after sort of that evaluation process, we schedule a preparation session in which we really go through at length what this experience will be like. We talk about setting an intention for the experience. Uh, people are provided a journal that is then utilized during the session in which we kind of keep a transcript of what happened. And so the day of the session, it's myself and a co-therapist uh, we use a two-therapist model, which is the model that is sort of advocated by MAPS for their MDMA trials and the psilocybin trials as well that are being conducted out of a number of places. And that, uh, you know, in and of itself is 
really geared towards providing a sense of safety, reassurance for people. Um, we start off with settling in, taking vital signs, making sure that someone feels comfortable. The setup is a very sort of warm, I have a chase lounge, a very comfortable chase lounge with bedding and soft blankets, pillow. I provide an eye mask, uh, which is sort of a specialty psychedelic experience eye mask that has cutouts inside where you can kind of keep your eyes open but be in total darkness. We play music, uh, generally sort of lyric-free music that kind of sets an ambiance. There's essential oils that are going through a diffuser, and so it's really kind of like a very pleasant sensory experience, uh, beautiful kind of green landscape to look out at. Um, and we start off with taking the medication and reading through intentions again. I prepare sort of like a long sort of invocation that I'll read to someone uh, that is sort of specially tailored to what we're hoping might manifest during the session, what we're hoping to turn towards to crack the door open on a little bit for therapeutic healing. And as you, and, yeah, I just want to, I just want to move you more yeah, into it. And so as, as it's kind of settling into them, I mean, what are some of the things that they are uncovering or noticing um, that may help them move through these depressive symptoms? Sure. Yeah. So the first effect of ketamine, and I, I provide it one of two ways. It's either through like a lozenge, like a mint uh, type, mento type thing that men melts in the mouth, or for more psychedelic type higher doses, we have an intramuscular injection. And those those routes are qualitatively different. But without getting into that, sort of the first subjective experiences of ketamine are, are calm. Again, it's a pain reliever. And so uh, people start to feel calm little nagging pains tend to go away. There's a sense of a little bit of numbness, a sense of floating. It's almost dreamlike. It's like entering a waking dream. And the first hour of this three-hour experience tends to be kind of sort of moving into that inward space, that dreamlike space. The second hour tends to be a fairly inward experience for many people. Not always. Uh, there are some who don't talk at all and are kind of on a, an internal sort of dream, um, which might be very visual in nature. It might be more often than not very emotional in nature. Uh, a lot of times pleasant, euphoric even, but sometimes difficult, sometimes challenging. Sometimes there are tears. Uh, but one of the things that ketamine seems to do that I've noticed over and over for people is that it provides a sense of reassurance that, of course, we, we strive to kind of reinforce with, with the way that we guide and even the physical setup that we have in the office. But there's a sense of reassurance that even when difficult content comes up, it, it's okay. It's, it's okay to be with it. Uh, it's almost more matter of fact and, and easier to turn towards and be with. And, and that tends to be the predominant kind of flavor of the middle hour. And then there's an emergence from that during the third hour in which as the medication is starting to wear off, people are less inhibited, more open to therapy, that some really wonderful therapy can happen during that time. Uh, sometimes there's just some exhaustion, just like, wow, what the heck just happened? <laughs> A desire to just kind of follow the music as sensory perception is really sharpened with ketamine. Um, 
But that that's sort of the general flow of the experience. And then you do continue, I know, to do some integration sessions um, moving forward. I want to bring in one more guest to the conversation now. Dana Saxon is the founder of Ancestors Unknown, a family history research organization. And after a years-long struggle to treat her own depression, a move to the Netherlands prompted her to try something new, microdosing magic mushrooms or psilocybin. Dana, welcome to the show. Hi, Anita. Thank you so much for having me. Of course. So your experience is a bit different from what we were talking about um, with Hanny. It didn't happen within the walls of a therapist's office. Um, You tried microdosing and you tried a full trip on your own after doing a lot of work with various kinds of antidepressants over the years. So talk to me about what led you to deciding to try this as an alternative treatment for your depression. Yeah, absolutely. So as you mentioned, it was a years-long struggle that I was dealing with. I um, was formally diagnosed with depression in, I believe it was 2002, and in 2017 is when I found myself living in the Netherlands. I had been there for a few years at this point, Um, but the struggle with depression was just ongoing, and I hadn't yet figured out how to properly recover. And Hanny mentioned um, the word healing, and that was really what I was looking for. Everything I had been doing up until that point was basically a treatment or a Band-Aid for the problem. I had um, tried Prozac for a short period of time, and that just felt like a numbing and sort of, you know, it, it did help, uh, and it made it helped me function, um, but it really didn't feel like I was recovering from what was causing the depression. So at this point, years later, I was just really frustrated. I had been living with it, coping with it, but looking for a proper solution. So I started researching natural remedies, and that's how I came across uh, magic mushrooms as a potential solution. And I approached it kind of academically and did tons of reading and research and just uncovered a lot of what's already been discussed uh, today, just how these healing components can really be a treatment for depression. And since I was living in the Netherlands, after growing up in the United States, I, I saw that this was an option for me to do it legally, to grow my own mushrooms and approach this uh, in a really personal way outside of um, you know the traditional uh, therapies that were only available through doctors in the United States, I thought, why not go for it, try something alternative, and um, yeah, so that's what that's what made me try this alternative approach to healing. Could you take us into the your into your trip and and what that experience was like for you, and what it helped you kind of see about yourself and your mind that led to a lot of healing? Yeah, absolutely. So when I decided to do to use mushrooms, I I made two decisions. I said. I was going to do one full trip because I had never tried mushrooms before in any context, recreationally or anything. So I was going to experience one full trip to take my mind really through the full experience. Um, And then I was going to do microdosing. So I knew even when I was doing the full trip that I was going to continue on with smaller doses as an ongoing treatment for my depression. But when I did the full trip, I did it alone, which was against a lot of the advice that I was reading in my with my research. People were saying you need guidance and you need somebody who's been there before. But I thought this is a really personal experience for me. This this depression is something that not everybody, really not anyone understands. So I'm going to do this on my own. And I decided to 
I grew my mushrooms at home. I, I had fresh mushrooms ready. I recorded myself um, on my computer just with video just so I could document the experience. And um, it took me several hours to actually experience the trip. I was frustrated, and I thought I was broken. I already <laughs> felt broken because of the depression. But I was like, these mushrooms aren't working, and I was kind of panicking about it. Um, or I felt really tense. And not until hours later, I decided I was giving up. I was going to bed. I turned on a clip of Rachel Maddow because that's how I go to sleep. <laughs> I was watching watching Rachel, um, and then suddenly I saw her come out of the computer. Like it basically, she became 3D to me, um, and that was basically the the culmination of the the. The, hallucin- the hallucinating experience. Otherwise, I really went into an internal conversation with myself. And as I was documenting myself on video, I was talking to myself. And I started to see things in myself. Um, and Ishmael mentioned this earlier as well, that it, it really is about opening up what's already there or making visible what's already there. I wasn't seeing things like the trees dancing or, you know, I wasn't having conversations with people that weren't there. It was conversation with my inside self. Um, And one of the things that I saw first that really opened me up to the emotional experience was I saw myself panicked. I saw this, this vision of myself as I was looking at the computer screen recording myself, this, this like, basically I was kind of screaming and the, the, my first reaction was, oh, my God, she's a monster. Hmm. I felt like I was looking at a monster. And then as I reflected on it some more, as I'm talking to myself, I was literally talking out loud to myself. I was saying, I'm actually not, this, this person inside of me that I was now seeing very clearly was not a monster. It was somebody who was very scared, very lonely, very um, feeling very unsafe in this world. And once I met that version of myself, the conversation went even further. I even saw... My father, uh, who who had died um, over a decade earlier, who I always feel his presence around me, but I saw him and I had a conversation with him uh, during this trip, and it was just such a such an emotional experience, and really felt therapeutic. By the time it ended, I felt like I had been through at least a couple of years of therapy. I'm going to have you stay with us, Dana Saxon, founder of Ancestors Unknown. But I want to say goodbye now to Hanny El-Wafi, a psychiatrist based in Chapel Hill. Hanny, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity to, to discuss this. Oh. Um, and I, you know, I, I do hope that people can tune in and, and learn more and that the, the government uh, continues to test and learn more. And we are we're in the midst of a crisis and, and need better and more available forms of healing. Uh, And so uh, thank you so much. Wonderful. We will continue to talk more about access and regulation and all of that as we continue our conversation about psychedelic medicine just ahead on The State of Things. Please stay with us. This is Embodied on the State of Things. I'm Anita Rao. We are in the midst of what some folks are calling a psychedelic renaissance. And part of that is an increase focused on the medicalized aspects of psychedelic use. But as therapists and researchers embrace psychedelics, how do they pay homage to their indigenous roots and recognize that communities of color have long been vilified for drug use? Practitioners like Letitia Brown, a marriage and family therapist at Doorway Therapeutic Services in Oakland, are working to use psychedelics in culturally responsible ways and break down barriers to access for communities of color. Letitia joins us now. Letitia, welcome. 
Hi, thank you for having me. Of course. Also still with us is Dana Saxon, the founder of Ancestors Unknown. So Letitia, I want to start with you. Kind of Dana shared um, some of her experience in the Netherlands mm-hmm. and, and was beginning to kind of talk about, you know, confronting family members, confronting parts of herself. And I'm curious um, for you, I mean, how has psychedelic medicine been used as a tool for that kind of intergenerational trauma? How have you seen that in your practice? Yeah, it's um, it's a really amazing experience for folks to have. Uh, one of the things that we know happens, I mean, particularly with MDMA, which folks refer to as an entheogen, um, what happens for folks is that they are able to turn towards the things that we so often avoid or the things that we want to run away from or the things that may make us feel uncomfortable or unsafe or bring about some sort of pain. So revisiting any sort of trauma experience is something that MDMA allows people to do because it brings down a little bit of that fear. And one of the things that we realize is that if we turn towards the things that are scary, if we turn towards the things that are hard or the things that we're constantly trying to avoid, we can get into a different relationship with these things. And so I think um, I heard Ms. Saxon earlier speaking about uh, this idea of this, some, this part being really scary and being able to turn towards that and recognize like, oh, wait, maybe that's, maybe the thing that I think is scary is actually scared. And so what happens for a lot of people is that they're able to turn towards these parts of themselves. They're able to turn towards parts that are connected to um, their families and their culture and society at large. They're able to turn towards these things that we often are trying to get away from And they're able to get into this relationship where there can be some healing, because if we can't face those things, um, then it makes it much more difficult for us to to work with them. It actually gives us a little bit of distance when we can look at the thing, as opposed to feeling like we are encapsulated by it. Um, And the other thing that happens with a lot of psychedelics is this um, empathic experience where people feel this sense of connection and relationship to everything. So they feel that integration with themselves, but they also feel that connection to the the sitter, the person who's there with the person who's journeying to hold them safe. They feel that connection to even people in their lives who may have been harmful. They can uh, build that sense of connection to, again, right, the outside world. A lot of folks come out on the other side of a journey and they say, the answer is love, right? The answer is that we are all connected and that we are all responsible for each other. And so it's kind of seeing the other as self is yeah. another thing that happens for folks. Yeah. Well, I mean, Dana, I'm curious about kind of the, the fact that you did this and you chose to do this as a black woman. Uh, you were living in the Netherlands at the time. But I mean, within the Western cultural context, a lot of the conversation around microdosing and um, psychedelic use in general has really been centered on white voices and white experiences. A lot of folks in Silicon Valley have really publicized the use of this. So I'm curious about kind of your take on how common this practice is in non-white circles and if you encountered any of that perception um, when you decided to try it. Yeah, absolutely. I, I would say among my friends, my community, um, it, it was generally accepted and understood um, but once I started to share my experience um, with with black people who were not otherwise familiar with the use of psychedelics or the use of, of magic mushrooms, 
I was met with lots of skepticism and judgment, frankly. Um, I really wanted to shout it from the rooftops. I think this is something that all of us should be should be using and yeah as we're discussing this is a this is a solution for generational trauma so we need to have access to this as a solution so i want to tell everyone but a lot of people were looking at me like why are you taking these white boy drugs <laughs> like, yeah are you doing and um i was explaining that i i made myself microdose um pills and they were you know i got the you're taking pills? What are you doing? Um, so yeah, it was definitely a, a, a challenge to to confront that stigma and try to change people's notions that this is something that should be historically it's for uh, black and brown people absolutely to to use for as a healing um, solution as a remedy. Um, but yeah, we have to get out of this idea that it's not for our communities and it's only for other people, uh, to use. Cause that's certainly not the case. Well, and I know in a lot of the trials underway right now, MDMA and psilocybin are both in, um, trials for the FDA. They're in stage three. And Letitia, most of the folks have been white in those studies, but I'm curious about kind of what you've learned about communities of color in terms of their access to psychedelic assisted therapy. Are there a lot of barriers? Is it becoming more commonly used? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, there's so many pieces to that. Um, Ismael did a really good job of kind of giving this really quick sort of um, timeline and history around the drug war and how for a lot of folks, when we think about the drug war, we think about Nixon and we think about the 70s and the 80s, but how that drug war was something that started as soon as folks came here and settled and as soon as colonialism started in the Americas, when folks from Europe, folks from the Western part of the world came, saw these practices, didn't understand them, and then demonized them. What we have seen over the years is that that demonization has over time shifted into appropriation. And so there is this sort of new branding of the way that we look at the power of a lot of these medicines, that as if, as if it comes from the folks who initially came here and demonized it. When in actuality, right, as Ms. Saxon was saying, this is medicine that is known to Black and Indigenous folks of color for generations and for centuries. One of the things that we know that happened with the war on drugs, though, is that in addition to Black and brown folks being penalized at rates and continuing to be penalized at rates, very different from their white counterparts, we also received these messages about drugs being bad. Right? We have seen the impact of crack cocaine in our communities. We have seen the impact of heroin in our communities. And we also have this idea that psychedelics are things for white hippies in the Bay Area from you know, the free love movement. And the reality is, is that I think language goes a really long way. And folks having an understanding that this is part of our culture, this is part of our heritage, and it makes complete sense that you think this isn't for you. Right. That piece is the part that I think is really important, especially when we think about the history of um, all the kinds of ethical violations that have happened with psychedelics, with drugs, all of the research that has happened without consent on black and brown folks, yeah. particularly when it comes to psychedelics. Right. So we have this in addition to this sort of 
cultural knowledge that something about this stuff isn't right. I think we also hold this intergenerational knowledge from a couple generations back that reminds us this was used as a way to harm us. And so having that knowledge and understanding and recognizing like, yeah, it makes sense that you feel this way goes a really long way. And then reminding folks, right, this, this isn't, we don't have to use psychedelic as a term. We can use entheogen, but we can also use plant medicine. And one of the things that most people in my life, black and brown, they know a grandma or someone in their life who has used plant medicine to engage in just daily practices of healing. And so language is something that goes really far, but also, right, representation and visibility, the same barriers that get in the way for lots of practitioners to do this work, who are practitioners of color, are access and cost, right? Again, right, this is, this is a medicine that comes, for most of the part, right, most of the part, it comes from the earth. And so the commodification and yeah. the capitalization of this is another thing that definitely gets in the way. I want to bring Ismail Ali back into the conversation, Policy and Advocacy Council for the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies. And Ismail, maybe you can tell us where we are today in terms of the movement to decriminalize some psychedelic substances. How much access is there to these in various places and and maybe distinguish decriminalization from legalization for us? Sure thing. Thanks. And Leticia, thanks so much for that context. It was so beautifully put and so accurately put because I think, and, it, and I think it's a good segue to kind of have a conversation about how popular perception, both in communities of color and in the mainstream, are starting to change. So to kind of jump off of where I was at at the beginning of this uh, of this hour, you know, after the uh, after these substances were, were criminalized in the early 70s, there's been kind of a shift to, uh, I would, you might say, from criminalization to the clinic, where a lot of the research was kind of put into the scientific context. And today, we're now seeing the outcomes of some of that research really prove um, what many people have known all, all along, which is that these substances have healing effects. And the kind of secondary effect of that for the last you know, 30 or 40 years has really been a, a fixation and a focus on medicalization and medical access as the primary point of access to these substances. But to your question, in the last, especially, you know, three, five years or so, there's been a recognition that, well, if it's in fact possible to prove that these substances are safe when used in the right context and responsibly and in, by educated people or by people who've been educated on the risks and harms and potential benefits, um, that maybe it's actually worth thinking about ways to create access outside of the clinic. So when we're talking about decriminalization, we're most simply talking about reducing or eliminating the criminal penalties that exist with use, manufacture, or sale of these substances, um, often focused on the use itself because of this emphasis on healing and the individual experience and the potential collective healing that exists out of that. But often advocates go further to not just say, well, we should reduce criminal penalties, which I agree and many people in the field agree is a really important starting point because it reduces the chilling effect and reduces the stigma that Leticia was talking about that has existed for many years that has prevented people from safely exploring or having their own experiences because of both the literal legal risk as well as the kind of psychological risk or stigma associated with it. And there's now kind of a push to go further. There's been an extensive conversation emerging around regulation of substances. It's kind of an adage or a known within the drug policy kind of movement that the more regulation you have for a substance, the less likely it is to cause harm because of of issues of adulteration or um, not having the right materials or whatever that is. And the idea is that when you create regulated access, you can uh, solve for some of the risks and harms that potentially exist. So when people talk about legalization, they're not just talking about reducing criminal penalties. They're actually often talking about 
creating a regulated market or regulated access, whether it's through medicine or through the free market or through some other mechanism like co-ops or farmers markets or something else, where people can actually trade these substances in the market in a way that has enough oversight to ensure that people know what they're getting, they know where the sourcing is from, and a lot of those very practical things around access reduce the harm and the likelihood of harm significantly because right now, so much of the harm comes from A, the legal harm, the legal risk and the criminalization, or B, the actual safety of the substance itself in the context that it's in. So decriminalization is one step to reducing those criminal penalties, but the argument for legalization and regulation is that you can actually um, get ahead of problems that we already know exist in the underground market, uh, partially because it's unregulated and partially because it exists under prohibition. Yeah. So the, you, you see some movements in cities, municipal places like Denver and Oakland, who have started to push law enforcement to ensure that uh, enforcing these laws is the lowest law enforcement priority. And at the end of this year in November, we'll see a vote in Oregon, uh, Measure 109, that will decide whether or not a uh, non or quasi-medical kind of a psilocybin services initiative, uh, psilocybin services framework can exist outside of medicine, but related to the medical framework that's been uh, increasingly evidence-based. So we're going to see more of these kind of different iterations of legal access start to emerge. And I think it's going to be a matter of you know, seeing um, and kind of learning as we go and learning lessons as we go about what kind of systems do work because we're coming out of so many years of, uh, of the shadows, you might say. Dana, you are no longer microdosing because it is not legal in the U.S. to do so. But I'm curious, I mean, as you look at kind of where you are in your healing journey now, how much has stayed with you from that experience um, and how much kind of of the treatment really lasts for you and your ability to um, heal and, and think about your own story now that you're no longer actively microdosing? Yeah, and I should mention that I'm currently I'm currently in the U.S., but I still travel so much. So I'm um, mainly based in the U.K., and I also still go back to the Netherlands uh, quite a lot. So when I am able to access mushrooms, I do. Um, but, yeah, I'm not formally and regularly microdosing any longer, but I do think differently. I do uh, believe that the impact that the full trip, and I've had a couple of uh, full trips since then, and the microdosing has helped me um, heal. It's helped me understand what the uh, reasons for my depression have been. And when I am feeling like I'm slipping back into it, I'm, I'm able to uh, revisit the, um, the solutions that I came up with or the, the different ways of thinking um, that have helped me uh, cope with it. Uh, so it's definitely um, been basically like lifting off a film, uh, you know, like when you get a new TV and you have that like plastic film that's over it. I basically lifted that off and I see things much more clearly on and on a regular basis, even when I'm not actively taking the mushrooms any longer. I wish we had more time, but we're going to have to leave it there. My guests were Dana Saxon, the founder of Ancestors Unknown, Ismail Ali, Policy and Advocacy Counsel for the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, and Letitia Brown, a marriage and family therapist at Doorway Therapeutic Services in Oakland. Thank you all so much. Such a pleasure. Thank, Thank you. you, too. Thank you so much. You can find out more about everyone we talked about today and the rest of the Embodied series at our website, stateofthings.org. If you like the Embodied series, you can also find it at a pod- as a podcast wherever you get your podcasts. The State of Things is produced by Amanda Magnus, Grant Holub-Mormon, Kaya Finlay, and Stacia Brown. Jenny Lawson is our technical director, and Al Wadarski also helped engineer today's show. 
North Carolina Public Radio is a broadcast service of the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. I'm Anita Rao.